The Puritan preacher Thomas Keyes said on one occasion, we used to say, he that cannot pray, let him go to sea. Thus I say, affliction opens dumb lips and untieth the strings of the tongue to call upon God. But whom God teacheth in affliction, they learn to pray more frequently, more fervently. And how true that is. Uh, whenever uh, we think of the statement he made to the sea, we think of those sailors of long ago who went out, and they went on their ships, they faced storms. Many lost their lives. Many uh, suffered from the effects of the sea and from those journeys. And, of course, as Thomas Case said, he that cannot pray, let him go to sea. Because of the difficulties, he'll soon learn how to pray. And when we face affliction and trial and adversity within our lives, it often brings us to our last resort. And our last resort is to call upon the name of God. Of course, we should always have the name of the Lord upon our lips. We should always be praying. But adversity and trials and difficulties often bring us to that place where we have nothing left to do but to cast all at the feet of our Savior. When we come to Acts chapter 4, we find adversity coming upon the church of Christ, but we find them coming together to pray. And this prayer that they had together seemed to be a natural thing. In trials, in problems, they turned to the Lord. And being the Lord's people, they were always looking to Him, always praying, always seeking Him. And dear believer, when we consider the context that we have here, Peter and John had went to the temple, the lame man was healed. Acts chapter 4, they had opportunity to defend themselves before this council of men. And they had boldness, verse 13 tells us that this council saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men. And they marveled at that and took knowledge that they had been with Jesus. Their preaching, the manner in which they conducted themselves, their boldness, their confidence showed to this council that they were men who knew the Lord Jesus Christ. They could not deny the miracle. Verse 14 tells us that. This man was lame. He was healed. He was there. The evidence was in front of them. But they opposed the Savior, and they desired to hinder the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what did they do? They desired to stop these men preaching, and they did not cast them into prison, and they did not kill them as they did later on. But at this point in time, they called them and commanded them in verse 18 not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. The opening of the doors of adversity and affliction and trouble was coming upon the New Testament church. They were going to have to stand up and be counted for Christ. Being a Christian in the first century was not something that was a great thing to do. It would not give you a comfortable life. It would bring trial and it would bring hardship to take that stand and to declare faith in the Lord Jesus 
Christ. And we see that. Some of the apostles were killed. Peter himself, it is believed, uh, to have died and to have been crucified. The apostle Paul suffered many things. He lost his life, it is believed, in Rome. Though not recorded in Scripture, a tradition history would point in that direction. And Scripture itself tells us of Stephen, who was martyred and lost his life. And so when we come to this passage and we find uh, that they are being commanded not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus, simply be quiet is what this adversity is. But it's opening the door when they disobeyed to far greater things. This was the first step that they had to overcome. And the opposition that they faced, the adversity in view here from the Jewish council, the church did not listen to. See, the church of Jesus Christ has a mandate. And that mandate is to preach His gospel. What did the Savior say? Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. If we turn back to the opening verses of the book of Acts, and what did the Savior say? But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem. And then when adversity comes, well, don't worry about it anymore. No, the Savior said, Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Christ Himself told His apostles, this is your mandate. This is your duty. This is what the church, my church, must do. Preach in Jerusalem. And at this point, they were still in Jerusalem. And Christ had said, go into Judea. Then go into Samaria. And then the uttermost part of the earth. Building outward. Reaching the lost. In the local city. In the local area. In Samaria and then the rest of the world. And we see that in the book of Acts. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost part of the earth. We see that uh, working throughout the history of the church of Christ as the gospel is spread over the world. This was the mandate of the church. And as these Jewish leaders turned around and said, don't preach anymore. The church of Christ had a choice. They had this decree, this command not to preach and they had this decree, this command of Christ to preach. And what would it be? What would it be? And the church of Christ here sets us a glorious example. They did not give in. They did not turn around and say, well, we're worried here. We're worried for our lives. We're worried for our families. We're going to do this privately. We're going to take a step back. No, Christ, their great master, said, go into the world and preach the gospel. And dear believer, that is the great mandate that still exists to the church of Christ today. That is the mandate that we have, not merely to engage in the gospel in Jerusalem, but in Judea and in Samaria and into the uttermost part of the earth. I remember many years ago, Dr. Paisley back in Northern Ireland was telling us about uh, this evangelistic effort he wanted focused on uh, the south of Ireland. Uh, the south of Ireland had, I think, uh, two free Presbyterian churches, and Northern Ireland had about 60, 
I think somewhere in the region of the equivalent of between here and Edmonton, or maybe not even quite to Edmonton, 60 churches and thousands of believers. But yet, in the south of Ireland, there were two congregations. And once you drove probably 30 minutes past the border, that was it. There were no more. And you could keep driving for several hours uh, to the edge of the island before you fell off. And there's nothing else. There's a great area, a great geographical area to reach for Christ. And he called that endeavor Arsamaria, Arsamaria, where, based on, I suppose, politics, there were differences of opinion, differences in religion, and a bit like the Samaritans, who were different and not on the best terms with the Jews themselves. Reaching out, Arsamaria, and that is the mandate of the church. And I believe when they were faced with this command not to pray or not to preach, they remembered the words of Christ. They had no choice. They had to preach in obedience to their Savior. And dear believer, let us not set aside the commands of Christ when faced with the commands of this world. Christ must come first. And so what did they do? When faced with this adversity, they prayed, and they sought the Lord in prayer. They gave priority to prayer. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that the ultimate test of our profession of faith is our prayer life. The secret was that they, they being the church, knew God. Their enemies threatened them, and they prayed. They didn't flee. They didn't rethink their life's purpose. They prayed, and they prayed for something in particular, not for their enemies, to perish in fire and brimstone. But as we come down this prayer, we'll see they prayed simply for the continuation of God's work. We'll ignore that command. We'll leave it up to the Lord to deal with that, and we will keep preaching. Derek Thomas, a preacher, a Welsh preacher originally, pastor in Northern Ireland and America, he said that this is a model prayer, a pattern for us, something that we can model our own prayer life upon. And dear believer, that is our purpose this evening. I want you to consider, quite simply, prayer, the right response to adversity. Prayer, the right response to adversity. And firstly, I want you to see that our prayers must magnify God. Our prayers must magnify God. Faced with difficult situations, our prayers must never forget who God is. And as we pray, let us magnify His name. Let us glorify Him, because that is what we see here. At verse 24, and they came together with one accord. There's this great unity, a unity because they know the Lord, a unity because they love the Lord. Uh, we find that uh, there in the book of Acts at, I think, chapter 1, where they came together again with one accord to pray, looking for the promise of Pentecost. There's a unity, a unity. And the people of God ought to be united together. This is maybe going off slightly our point that our prayers magnify God, uh, but uh, we magnify God by praying together in unity. Well, let me emphasize that. As God's people, as His church, we are to come together with one accord. We're to pray toward a distinct purpose. Christ's will, the mandate of Christ regarding His church, the work of God. 
We're not to have in the uh, prayer meetings of the church one person praying uh, for, for example, uh, the radio ministry and another person is praying against it. And one person is praying for the man who'll come to visit and preach on Sunday and one person is praying against it. That would be ludicrous. What is going on? There's disunity here. And oh, how disunity can affect the church of Christ. Here the church came with one accord. They were united together. They knew their purpose. They knew the purpose of Christ. And they came and they prayed. And they lifted their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, Thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of Thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? Quoting from Psalm 2, The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. And this prayer is filled with rejoicing and thankfulness. They did not come with a state of fear. They came and first of all, they acknowledged who they're praying to. Dear believer, when you face adversity, when you face trials in life, here the adversity was the opposition and persecution that was coming from the Jews. But we can face affliction. We can face hardship and all sorts of trials and tribulations. And as we come to pray, let us remember we have a God to magnify. Not only ought we to do that and to glorify God, but it reminds us as we pray who our God is. Who our God is. They commence their prayer similar to the way David prayed in the Psalms. They also quote Psalm 2. And they pray regarding the Lord and who He is. He is their God. He's the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is. They're referring to the Lord here as one who is the sovereign master a term that indicates who they believe God is, the one who is in control. The master, dear believer, do you see God as the master of this world, the one who is sovereign? He created it. He sustains it. He filled the earth and the sea he, and all that in them is. He made it. Do you recognize Him as the absolute master? That is who the Scripture says that He is the one who is in control. And here is a confidence they have as they approach the throne of grace and as they bring their problem to the Lord, they are reminding themselves of who God is. He is not some old man in the sky that men will say that He is and blaspheme against God. He is not someone who has a limit to His power. He is not someone who is like the earthly representations they use to entertain and to put in comedy shows. Oh, how God is blasphemed by this world. And we need to have a right view of God. We need to have a right understanding of who He is. Because we are His people. We are His flock. And here they understand who He is. The one who is in control the one who is in control, taking confidence and in our trials and difficulties. These truths 
apply to us, do they not? Understanding who God is, it brings us comfort. He's the one who is in control. He is the one who in His divine will has brought us to that place within our lives. They speak also of the works of God, the one who made the heaven and the earth, the authority of God. They have a power or confidence in the power of God. How is heaven and earth made? The sea and all that in them is by the power of God. The sovereign master, the one who has infinite power. And so they're building here in the opening of their prayer this great and true image of their God and reminding themselves and glorifying God for who He is. Dear believer, it is pointless coming to the place of prayer if we do not believe that God has the power to answer our prayers. If we come to pray and we believe that God will not answer and God cannot answer, why are we praying? Why are we praying? The people of God have one they can turn to who is the sovereign master and one who is in control and one who hears and answers prayer and one who has the power in His will to answer prayer. So therefore, when we come to the place of prayer, we come expecting. We come with confidence because we're coming to the Lord who has the power to answer our prayers. If we needed help in this world, My car engine completely, I don't know, exploded or shut down. I'm not going to take it to the nail salon and ask one of the girls there if she could come and fix my car engine. That's not going to happen. They might have a very good idea how to do it, uh, but that's not where you go, and that is not the person you employ, although they may very well be able to fix it. But that's not their profession. You would go to a mechanic. You'd go round and you'd say, there's a problem with my car. It won't start. The engine's completely dead. Can you help me? Can you fix this? And why do you go to the mechanic? Because the mechanic knows what he's doing. He has the power to understand, the knowledge to understand how that engine works and to fix that engine. The same when it comes to uh, building a house, whatever it might be. And the same uh, whenever you have uh, things to do in business, great endeavors to be done, you get someone who has that power and that knowledge. If you have a problem in your business or on your farm or whatever it might be, you'll go for the right person, the right person, the person who knows what he's doing person who knows what he's doing. If you need a letter delivered, you'll come to me. But if you need something done with your car, well, don't come to me. You can go to somebody else. We go to people who know what they are doing. And when we come to the throne of grace in prayer, we come believing. We're coming to the right person. We're coming to our God. We're coming to the one who sees what is happening, who knows what is happening, who has the power to change and to intervene and to give grace and help and strength, and one who allowed it to happen because he is in control. 
And they prayed here for a response based upon who God is. The powerful God who can answer their prayer. They prayed regarding God's Word also here because we see that they come to the Word of God. They come to Psalm 2, and we'll turn to that psalm, the second psalm, just for a moment. The second psalm, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? I believe we mentioned this last Lord's Day. Uh, the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. And here in Acts 4, there's this outworking of Psalm 2. They're coming together, and yes, they will kill and murder the people of God later on, but at this point, they're just saying, stop preaching. But they are taking counsel against the Lord and against His anointed. They're in control, not the God of heaven. And the people of God are reminded then of God's Word. And as they pray, they bring His Word to their God. Let us break their bands asunder, this world says. And then they remind themselves through Scripture, He that sitteth in the heaven shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. The men in this world, the powers that be in this world, are only the powers in this world because God has ordained it and He is ultimately in control. And there was encouragement then from the Word of God. And dear believer, when we come to pray, how encouraging it is for us to remind ourselves of what God has said in His Word, of the comfort of Scripture, of who God is, of how God works. And in this situation, how God is above His enemies. Their prayer it magnifies God for who He is. If you have a problem, a trial, a difficulty, and you come to pray, remind yourself of who God is. Magnify Him. It'll encourage your heart. You'll bring glory to God, but it will encourage your heart because you're reminding yourself of who you're praying to and the one who has the power to help in your situation. Notice here, secondly, and we've touched on this already, but our adversity drives us to prayer. Our adversity drives us to prayer, and it should. We should always be praying in adversity or when things are going good. But adversity drives us to prayer. The people of God here, Peter and John, they came to the church. They did not decide to raise an army. They did not decide to do some other thing, whether it be an assassination of these men or cause some sort of trouble. They did the right thing, and this is why prayer is the right response to adversity. They brought this matter to the Lord. This problem drove them to pray. Being told not to preach seems insignificant with losing your life later on. But at this point in time, this was their trial. This was their tribulation. This was their adversity. They bring it to the Lord because it is an attack upon the work of Christ. An attack upon the work of Christ. The Lord has been blessing. This man, this lame man was healed. Verse 4 tells us about those who believed and the number of the men was about 5,000. Verse 3 tells us hands were laid upon them. They were put in hold to the next day. But it tells us that despite this, how be it? Many of them which heard the word believed. And so God had moved and God had saved and the enemy comes in. 
as they were speaking and preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they had an opportunity then to preach this word before the council. And Peter preaches Christ. Verse 12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And if you know not Christ tonight, you've never repented of sin, you've never trusted in Him, Acts 4 verse 12 is a verse tonight for your heart. Neither is there salvation in any other. They're preaching Christ. And this is causing problems and adversity because they're saying that Christ is the only way to salvation. And they're right in saying that. The Word of God tells us here Salvation is not found in anybody else. And oh, how man has his ideas. And man has his opinions. And philosophies of how we can be saved other than through Christ. Church attendance and good works and tithes and whatever it might be. All these things cannot save. Salvation is only found in Christ. And dear believer, if you know Christ as Savior, and He is yours, and you are His, how marvelous that is. Because He came into this world to die on the cross for you who were an enemy to Him. To die on the cross for you who sinned against Him. For you who deserve His wrath for all eternity, He took your sin, He died in your place. Oh, the marvel and the wonder of the love of God. And Peter here says, there's salvation in nobody else. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Christ is the only name. And Peter is emphasizing something here, not merely that salvation is through Christ, but connected to that, he is saying that because this is the only way. We have to preach this message. We don't have a choice. Verse 20 tells us that clearly. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. They believed because they saw Christ. They believed because they heard Christ. They knew and had experienced Christ's salvation. They've been commanded to preach. They could do nothing else. Dear believer, do you have a heart like Peter and John? Do you have a heart like the apostles? In that there's nothing else that you can do but speak of Christ and tell others of Christ. And by your life, be a witness for Christ. For we cannot but speak the things which we have heard and seen. We can't do anything else but speak of Christ. Oh, how Peter and John, standing before this council, they didn't shy away. They didn't back down. How afraid we can be sometimes when we speak of Christ. How anxious we can be when we're faced with people who are the adversaries of Christ, not kings who just need to give the order to kill us like the apostles, but others in the workplace in the place of education, in the family. We trust Christ as Savior and we're worried about their reaction. We're worried about telling them about the gospel. We're worried of how they will treat us if we tell them that they need to
to hear the gospel and they need to be saved. Think on verse 20, for we cannot but speak the things which we have heard, which we have seen and heard. Keep praying, keep proclaiming Christ, keep being that witness for Christ with wisdom, with wisdom, with grace, with love. Oh, how scared we can be when faced with others who we know will challenge our faith and attack us if we say, well, we believe in Christ, we're a Christian. Rise above that. Peter and John here, they didn't back down. They knew who they were as disciples and servants of Christ. And God gave them grace. God gave them boldness, confidence. That's what that word means in the original Greek. Verse 13, boldness, confidence. They stood before this council. The attack had come. The adversary was upon them, and they stood not with fear, but with confidence. They knew they had the truth. Dear believer, do you know you have the truth tonight? The truth of God, the truth of salvation. Is it in your heart? Is it seen in your life? Is it displayed in all that you do? That you are a servant, a believer, a disciple of Christ, one who knows Him and one who loves Him, one who has confidence in that. Oh, that you would have confidence in Christ. You would have a boldness to speak for Christ. You would seek the Lord for that strength and that help, for boldness to speak for Christ. They prayed regarding the adversaries. Verse 27, For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. There's a great acknowledgement here. And we need to understand this. The Lord had predetermined this to take place. He is the sovereign master. And so they received comfort, but they also reminded themselves in prayer that what had happened to Peter and John was not outside the plan of God. God had permitted it to take place. That's not God's stamp of approval upon what was happening. When Stephen was killed later, God permitted that to take place. That is not God's stamp of approval upon murder. God had predetermined this opposition. But that does not make the opposition godly or moral. It was still marked by sin and a rejection of God. But He is in control. He is in control. And when God brings us into trials, into afflictions, into difficulties, He's not lost His reins. He's not been replaced as the sovereign master. He is still in control. Still in control. Here in this situation of adversity, they acknowledged their God was in control. How encouraging that is to you and I. Oh, the hardship we face, the pressure we face, the trials coming down upon us, whether it is tribulations in this life, whether it is the opposition to Christ. And we can turn around and say to the Lord that Thou art in control, and all that is happening, Thou has determined it. Thou hast brought it to pass. It's in Thy will. 
And then what do they do? Thirdly, they pray. They seek God for their needs. Our praying is a seeking God for our needs. That's what they're doing here. Dear believer, when you pray as a response to adversity, seek the Lord for your needs. And this is what they did. They prayed. And now, Lord, verse 29, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. I think this is wonderful. I think this is marvelous what we see here. It is not a prayer by which uh, this counsel is to be removed by the power of God, by vengeance and by the wrath of God. They're not praying for God to bring down His wrath upon them, but they are simply praying, Lord, Thou hast predetermined this. This is happening in Thy will. What are we to do? We are to preach. We're to fulfill that mandate. We're to live for the Savior. And therefore, Lord, in spite of all these threatenings, we just simply pray for confidence and boldness to keep going forward. How marvelous that is. They recognized what their need was. God is in control. And they just prayed for the help they needed to keep going forward for the Lord. Yes, the Lord could remove this opposition in His will. But they knew it was predetermined. And they simply desired the confidence to rise above it. Confidence. They prayed for confirmation also. Verse 30, By stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. Confirmation to support the Word of God, to back up what they said. Souls were being saved. Christ had risen from the dead. Christ is the only Savior. Turn to Him. And at this point, in the will of God, there were signs and wonders supporting that. Now we have Scripture, the account of Scripture, but they had signs and wonders. And they prayed for that. They wanted people to be assured that they had a message from the Lord. And the great purpose here of their praying was simply that despite the opposition, the work of God would go forward. And dear believer, when we face adversity, when we face hardship in our lives, let us pray to the Lord for strength, for boldness. Let us pray that His work would continue to go forward. That is what we need. That is what every congregation needs. Despite the adversity and the trials and the difficulties, the people of God to be in one accord and united together, that God's work will go forward, that they will labor together and serve together and pray together and have confidence together that His Word would go forward. Is that the prayer of our hearts? That in adversity, the work of God would not be hindered, but it would go forward in great power. And finally, I want you to see as we close, our prayers are heard by God. Our prayers are heard by God. That's a lesson we glean from this. Verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Again, this unity. Neither said any of them that ought of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon 
them all. There's a sign. The Lord gave this sign, the shaking of this place. He had heard His people. He was with His people. There was boldness. This is what they needed. They were filled with boldness. Verse 33 reminds us as well of this power. The Lord gave His servants power. He had chosen them to preach. He was with them. And despite this opposition, He was not going to fail them. The friend that is closer than a brother. The one who will never leave us nor forsake us. There was a sign. There was this boldness. There was this power. There was grace. Verse 33, great grace was upon them all. When we think of grace, we think of the beauty of Christ. We think of the wonder of Christ. We think of grace, the grace of the Savior, how He had grace toward the little ones who came to Him, how He had grace toward His enemies. Grace is important. Grace to combat those who are against you. Grace to love their souls. Grace to preach the Word of God to them. What would happen A short time after this, one of the great persecutors, Saul of Tarshish, would be saved by the power of Christ. A man who was involved in the murder of Stephen, a man who was wicked and evil, seeking to cause havoc within the church of Christ. And God saved him. And the people who had been hurt the people who had been afflicted, the people who had been oppressed by him, he was now their brother in Christ. And they they needed grace, the grace of God to forgive him, to pray for him, to encourage him, to support him in the work of God. They saw the power of Christ's salvation, the power by which Christ had saved this vile man, And oh, the rejoicing there would have been at the chief of sinners being saved. A man who was the great persecutor was now the great preacher to go into the world with the gospel. Oh, great grace. The Lord had great grace upon Saul. The Lord had great grace upon His people. Oh, we need grace. We need grace. We need grace to interact one with another. We need grace to stand for the Lord. Let us desire it. Let us desire it. Oh, prayer. Prayer is important. Prayer is important. One preacher said that God took the evil intentions of men here and used them for His own purposes. Dear believer, as we close, men have evil intentions. Let us seek the Lord to take those intentions and use them for His own purposes. Here we have a great model, a great pattern in prayer. Here we have a godly response to opposition. Prayer. Let us pray. Let us seek the Lord. Let us, when faced with adversity, affliction, trial, let us always put prayer first. Let us always seek the Lord. May the Lord bless His Word tonight for His name's sake. Amen. And let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank Thee for Thy Word. We rejoice in thy gospel. We rejoice in those here who set this great example in prayer because of the sake of the gospel. Father, we pray that each one of us would know Christ, 
Each one of us would have our hearts moved by the Savior. Each one of us would know His so great salvation, that salvation Peter preached. But we realize that salvation is not found in anyone else or anything else other than the Savior. Father, may our eyes be upon Christ. There be those here outside of the kingdom of heaven. We pray their eyes would be focused upon the Savior, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. Father, give us grace. Grace to love one another. Grace to love Thee. Grace to serve Thee. Even this week, Father, give us courage. Give us boldness. Give us confidence. Give us grace. We do pray Thou would part us with Thy blessing. Answer our cries this night. May the love of God our Father, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit rest, remain, and abide with us both now and forevermore. Amen.